even though the world will tell women that the best and only thing you can be is young and beautiful i'm like i know that's garbage yeah. so i have to be like willing to like take those steps in my own life to be like i know that's garbage so you can still be you without all of the stuff Hey everyone, welcome to Ben Better, How About You? I'm your host, Katie Nara, and I've suffered from depression nearly my entire life. It sucks. This is a podcast that focuses on mental health, broken down in a relatable way and told through personal experiences. P.S. I'm not a doctor, but each week my guests and I will cover everything from recognizing symptoms of anxiety and depression to providing accessible tips, tools, and resources that support mental wellness. So get your weekly prescription with me, Welcome back to another episode of Ben Better. How about you? I'm your host, Katie Nara. And today we have Daniel Prescott joining us. She is a content creator, journalist, and author. Hi, Danielle. Welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us. How are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I love that you live in New Orleans. For those of you that don't know, Daniel was, you lived in New York for a really long time, right? Yeah, I went to college in New York. I went to NYU. So I, I was there since I was 18. And you went, you moved to New Orleans during the pandemic, right? Or was that? I did two years ago in January of 2021. So it's been two years now. It's hard to even fathom. It's been, I'm like, where did the time go? It's not fair. And you love it, right? Because when you first moved there, I was like, she's going to move back to New York. No, I'm not moving back to New York. I don't think I ever will move back to New York. <laughs> Why you just you'd had your fill? It's a tough city. I used to live there. I'm like, yeah. I just feel like I am tired of always having this like armor on, this like sense of like intense competition. Like my office used to be in Times Square, and I would have to fight my way to the office doors. Like you know, it was like on Broadway, and I'm like, that's like a not normal way to feel all the time, where you're just like. It's constant fight or flight mode. Your stressors are like activated all the time. And I'm like, I don't want to feel like that. And I'm like, and you don't really get to not feel like that in New York. Like, you know, you fight your way on the subway, you fight your way on the sidewalk. No, it's true. Fighting for dinner reservations. Yeah. Yeah. It's just like, I'm like, that's just like not really like healthy to live in like all the time. And even though I lived very well in New York, I also felt like I was like, I never will have enough. Like I'll never have enough to be like totally comfortable. And I was like, that's also stressful because I worked constantly. I still work constantly. So I've discovered I'm just a workaholic, but I (laughs) can work less now if I wanted to. So you were in New York for over 15 years. Mm-hmm. As you went to school there, I know it's true for those people that have never lived here. It is. I always feel like you're also like schlepping so much stuff around because I mean, I never had a car there or no one has a car there. And like, so you're constantly bringing the workout clothes, the the work clothes, the going out clothes, the this getting on that. And the fact that you even had to fight to get into your job sounds very stressful. So awful. you're loving living in New Orleans. I am. I mean, it has its problems too. I feel like no place is perfect, but I'm mm-hmm. also like, 
I don't know if people know this, but you don't have to be, you don't have to tie your identity to the place you live. Like you can just live somewhere. I'm like, there are these things called planes <laughs> get on them and they take you to anywhere else you want to go. So you can visit right. a ton of places. You don't have to just stay where you live all the time. No, it's true. Especially now post pandemic, I feel like, like we're doing this interview via zoom. Like mm-hmm. you can kind of do anything from wherever you are. So yeah. that's a good, that's a good point. Um, So you're an author, content creator, and journalist. Mm -hmm. Which role do you enjoy the most? Well, I wish I had more time to enjoy being an author because I'm (laughs) supposed to be working on my second book and I just don't have any time to do that because I have so much other stuff going on. So what else are you working on right now? Can you share or? Of course. So I have a DI consulting business with my business partner, Chrissy Rutherford. It's called 2BG Consulting. And the top of the year is always a really busy time for us, like coming off of Martin Luther King Day, going into Black History Month. What we do mostly is help fashion and beauty brands on their anti-racism journeys. So help them to understand what their relationship to white supremacy is, like how they can be more inclusive in their language, their marketing. And it's it's very, very busy. A lot of people need help with that. (laughs) A lot of people need help with that. And yeah, I also, I just signed with management like literally last week. So that will help take some of the content creator drama off my plate, but I negotiate all my own contracts. Like, yeah. That must be exhausting. Is brutal. <laughs> yeah, all about myself. So all that prevents me from being able to like spend as much time writing as I want to. I also have to spend a lot of time reading to and be a good writer. And I never have any time to read because I'm doing so much other stuff. Yes. And you said, well, you just opened up two things that I have for later in the interview, but we might as well jump right into one of them. <laughs> okay. You know, when we were all in lockdown during summer 2020, Mm-hmm. And this was, you know, May 25th. I believe it was May 25th had already happened. May 25th is when George Floyd, that was the day of his death. And then the aftermath was so much, I think with everything, because everyone was isolated, was displayed on social media. Mm-hmm. And then on June 2nd, it was Blackout Tuesday, where I feel like everyone will know this, but for anyone that is listening that doesn't, is when brands or people or personalities would put a black square in their profile. I am so curious to hear your thoughts on this because I know you spoke out, which I loved or called out many brands or personalities would just kind of throw up a black square suddenly became inclusive overnight. How, there's like three parts to this question. Well, number one, do you ever regret sort of regret publicly calling someone out? No. Okay, that's awesome. (laughs) And why? Like, cause I think a lot of people regret sometimes speaking their mind or their truth, you know, and then they're like, oh, but I think it's great that there are people that will do that because there aren't a lot of people that will. Yeah. I have Colin Kaepernick's jersey hanging in my living room to remind myself that it is important to stand up for what is right, no matter what the consequences are. And I understand how white supremacy functions. So I am no longer internalizing the narrative that like I need to be quiet and liked and say things politely when injustice is going on, when things are just plain wrong, when people are being racist. And I'm like, who does that serve? That doesn't help me. There's like a phrase that people say in the South and it's like, the only thing you get by biting your tongue is blood in your own mouth. That's kind of, I never feel bad. No. And I'm also not wrong. 
That is oh, very no. empowering as well. So like, if I was like loud and wrong, that would be one thing. No, <laughs> no, no. You were like, I have my receipts. Business. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So with this business that you started with Chrissy, mm-hmm. how does, it, it seems like it's such a, I mean, so overwhelming because I think there are some people that really do want to be more inclusive and they just don't know how. So then it comes off like, oh, we just put up this black square, but like our whole campaigning is all white people and what are we doing? And now it's all looks like an old Benetton ad. How, what is the first step? Which is Um, such obviously not an easy question to answer, but I think many people would want to know that really do want to be more, but they don't know how, you know, they just don't know. I think one thing that fashion is very good at is like telling a story intentionally. So like we can make things look however we want to, but it, it goes beyond just like how something looks and appears. And like, I think people really need to understand their role in how white supremacy functions. You know, it's, it's not that, and I put this, you know, in the book that a lot of people have the assumption that white supremacy refers to KKK members, you know, people with tiki torches in Charlottesville, swastikas, like things like that. But like, actually, like we're interacting with white supremacy on a day-to-day basis because it touches every part of our lives. It touches housing. It touches the medical field, the financial field, um, education, criminal justice system, absolutely everything. And there's no way that you're able to escape it. Um, One of the analogies I use in the book is like, okay, imagine that you have a town with a poisoned water supply and this water supply has been poisoned for generations and generations. There is no way that you, a fifth or sixth generation water drinker is going to be like, I'm not sick. And everyone else around you is sick. The water is poisoned. You don't get to be like, I'm not sick. There's no way I'm not sick. You're definitely sick. We're all sick. It harms us all at the same rate, but a lot of people are not willing to look at it at the same way. You know, there's also a countercultural narrative that is very powerful that says, especially in America, no, everyone's equal. Like everyone has the same opportunities, you know, and this that's a very powerful message. And a lot of people believe that. And a lot of people think that like privilege only refers to money that you are privileged as long as you have access to money. But like, what I can tell you is that you cannot out earn, you cannot out educate, you can outrun, you cannot out pose, out be beautiful racism. It like everybody has felt it. Oprah as a billionaire has been racially profiled and felt racism. Obama as the president of this country was racially profiled and felt racism. Like everybody yeah, so it's like it when doesn't matter. Oprah wasn't allowed in the Hermes store when they were closing it. I remember that whole story in Europe. No, it's true. I mean, that's a really good point. And I think you saying that just from your background, your experience, the way you grew up, you know, people look, they just want to look at the cover, right? It was, it was interesting because we grew up very similarly, but someone just looking at us, they'd be like, oh, she probably grew up here. But then I ended up going to a school in West Baltimore where it was 95% black people and me, but people just assume things. So you, you really do hear the craziest shit 
about race when the people kind of assume an identity of you, of where you're coming from. Mm-hmm. And I think that was in a way a blessing in disguise for you because you you came out with all this knowledge that you could share with people that think it's past or, oh, that doesn't happen anymore. Yeah. You know, when you were speaking out during that time, I would imagine that took a toll on your mental health. I mean, yeah. you're always speaking out, but especially that one summer, because I feel like everybody felt like they were kind of going crazy. And what were some things that you were able to do to sort of help yourself? I think like really focusing my energy on writing the book was something that really helped because, you know, the book is a lot of personal narrative, like it is a traditional memoir. But what I did was I worked really hard on finding like cultural moments factual things that I could like put in there to like also highlight things that were happening in my own life. And I was proving to myself, like, you're not crazy. Like all of this stuff was going on. And that has a real effect on individuals. And so, yeah, I think focusing on that really helped me. Was there a pivotal moment in your personal or professional life that made you realize I have to write this book. And just for those that are your first novel, token black girl, a memoir, it was released October of last year. Mm -hmm. So was there something that made you realize, Oh, this is it. Well, I had been working on a book since like 2018 and I was like, okay, this is the year that it has to get done. So I took myself on a trip to Ireland completely alone I went to this, like, I went to this castle, like it's two hours outside Dublin. Like it's in the middle of nowhere. By yourself. Yeah. Alone. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, you have to write. And so one of the things that had been. No (laughs) pressure. Right. (laughs) But like, you have to figure this out. Like, I was like, this is now or never. Like it's a new year. It's January. Like let's do it. You're in a castle. (laughs) Yeah. So a lot of the things that we had been working on with my therapist in in therapy was, you know, this idea of self-love and what was really hard for me, I guess, to understand when it came to self-love and self-care, because I had spent so much time in the fashion and beauty space. And I think that the concepts of self-love and self-care became very commodified. It became, oh, self-care is a face mask. Self-love is taking yourself on vacation. You know, self-love is like ordering Uber Eats, not cooking, like that kind of thing. And I'm like, so I was confused about what it really meant. And so I was like, well, I guess I do only conditionally love myself. Like if, if I have my lashes done and if my hair is on the way I want, if I have the job that I want, if my apartment looks how I want, all of these things were like conditional barriers to like me loving myself. I'm like, well, as I am, no, I don't believe I'm good enough. And I was like, okay, well, what is, where did that come from? Mm -hmm. So then I started like, kind of like going back and being like, okay, well, I guess when I became obsessed with magazines, it was like, even before that, then I was like still feeling weird. And I was like, where is the source of this? And I was really like, it's white supremacy. So I was like, well, who better to write about relationship to white supremacy than someone who grew up like me. And so that's how I came up with like the direction of where the book was going to go. The original title was, I hate me. I hate me not. It was too long. So we changed it, but it was just like this, oscillation between like people being like women in general, but in particular black women, you're not good enough. 
unless X, Y, and Z. But also as you become an adult, everyone's like, why don't you have self-confidence? Why don't you love yourself? It's really bad. You have low self-esteem. And it's like, of course I have low (laughs) self-esteem. That's like not really that helpful either. (laughs) You know, it's like this like switch that like flips. And it's like, you, you told me my whole life that I wouldn't be good enough unless I did all of these things. So I do all these things, but I don't really feel good about myself because that's not how you feel good about yourself. That's no, it's a falsehood. It's a distraction. And how did the you working in the fashion industry amplify those that false narrative? Yeah, I think that fashion is it's one of those industries, especially like capital F fashion, that they make. Wait, you- what is capital F fashion? <laughs> capital F fashion is the fashion that nobody sees it's like the the like very much one percent it's very much like the industry of it like who is it's like cloistered rooms like quiet hallways it's like like how many people really have been to the met gala that's capital f fashion you know like everyone can say that they like fashion they have an opinion of it but it's like you don't really know unless you are like inside right um And like lowercase f fashion is more like the accessible stuff. So like, oh, I I want these platform Uggs because I think they're cool. But capital F fashion decided that they were going to make platform Uggs cool. And lowercase f fashion is like, oh, yeah, I I agree. I love I've never heard that before. That's great. (laughs) That should be your next book. (laughs) There you go. Quick. (laughs) So you were saying capital F fashion with the mental health on you. Yeah. So it's, it's a really like tough space to be in because it's not a democracy there. It's like, it comes from like the very concentrated few and you are like basically living to please them, you know, until you get your shot to be a decision maker. And like, you can wait decades till that happens, you know, but in the meantime, it's a lot of like, proving yourself, proving your worth, proving, you know, that you can do the job. And, and that's, it's really difficult. Right. right. really difficult. And do you feel like being in that industry also, it obviously didn't help your relationship with your body, how you've described Mm -hmm. it in the book, Mm -hmm. because there is a great, I mean, there's so many great quotes, but you describe, and I was like, oh, I was like, I feel like every, girl can relate to this who grew up in a certain era. I was run of the mill thin, but I needed to be exceptionally thin, stand out thin, the kind of skinny that people whisper about. I, I like started like crying just because I think how did you get out of that headspace? Because I don't think the fashion industry would have helped this <laughs> headspace. No. Yeah. That's what's really crazy. Like, you know, I also try to explain this in the book that you like being thin is almost a necessity to like getting to the next level in your career because you cannot afford clothing is so expensive, especially like designer clothing. So you can't afford to be at fashion shows or at these events in clothing that is not going to further the idea that you are an expert like in this field and so you need to like have access to the latest stuff which means that sometimes you're borrowing samples but samples are very small so if you can't fit into a sample 
you know, people are probably not going to be like taking your photograph much. And that is like a very material reality. There was like several articles, I think published around like 2016, 2017, people like complaining that, you know, street style photographers are only photographing thin women. And I'm like, well, thin women are the women who are in the latest collections of the season. And that's what the editors and the other end are like, well, we want to see that. We want to see what the impressive like outfits are. And a lot of it was just like, fake too. Either brands are paying girls to wear things or changing in the back of cars and, you know, just to like get this, these outfits out there, but they're really, really small. And so you need to be really, really small or you're not going to fit into them. So you're rewarded for just how thin you are. And I didn't even realize like how skinny I really was because I never felt like I was skinny enough. Right. Ever, ever. I remember I told somebody I like was very, I was a very low weight, maybe like 130. And I told someone how much I weighed and I, that I needed to lose more weight. She goes, Oh, you don't look like you weigh that much. And I'm like, I'm five, eight. Like I'm so hungry. I was like, I I'm trying my hardest. Yeah. And, um, yeah, it was like, you need to be smaller always, always, always. Yeah. But I think people really thought where it's like, sometimes I look at a photo and I'm like, Oh, I was really thin then, but I literally was suicidal. Not because of not, when you talked about in the book about when you did an egg retrieval, for me, it was like the opposite happened where I lost a lot of weight, but I also, I already suffered from depression. I went into this deep, deep, dark depression. Like it was really dark and it was right before March, 2020. So when the world just totally changed and I'll look back sometimes at pictures of that and I'm like, Oh, my legs there. But then I'm like, oh, I may have been in a casket soon. You know what I mean? And I had to go back on Zoloft, which makes me way more, you know? And so it's just like, why do we think that is happiness? Because you, by the way, then I never was like, I didn't look in the mirror and think I look great. Like I'm so thin. I'm so happy. No, it was like crying. No, I was like, I want to be, I was like, I want to be thinner. And like, I was like, I can't believe how big I am. Like I would like be like, oh my gosh, my jeans are so tight. And I'm like, they're a size 26. And now I'm like a size 31 or 32. I still can't find jeans that I like. I'm like, I still have a struggle. It's really bad, but I'm like, I can't believe how small I was and how I just wanted to be smaller. Right. Right. Do you think that that narrative has changed at all in the fashion industry? The capital F, not the like lowercase F. No, I mean, look, if, we, if Couture Week is happening right now, yeah, like they spent way more money making a foam lion head than they did trying to dress a woman above a size six. Yeah. Yeah. No, and that's true. that's every brand, you know, that's what they're showing. Like they're like, this is beautiful. This is like how we want to showcase our clothing. It is on very young, very thin women instead of like just being like, yeah, I'll figure out how to dress someone that's not that small. Right. So when you were the fashion, was it editor director at BET Mm -hmm. and you stopped, you said, I don't want to be on camera anymore. Mm -hmm. Just kind of we started this conversation, which I think is a really great thing to recognize because I think if you already have that mindset of, perfectionism and, or I can just speak for myself, but it sounds like that was a problem that you suffered from too, where it's like, if you're constantly having to look at yourself and it's not healthy. And I think a lot of young girls, especially, and, and boys or, you know, non-binary that they 
how do you get out of that mindset? Like, I like to just take a break from social media, you know, for hours or even like a day on end. I don't know if everyone can do that. But is there something you would recommend to younger people that are suffering from body dysmorphia? I mean, get into therapy if you can start meditating. I used to listen to like, I'm like, this is like so crazy. Cause it's like now becoming very popular, but <laughs> the advent of like lucky girl syndrome on TikTok. but there's a woman, her name is Louise Hay. She is kind of like one of the originators of, you know, positive mindset thinking. And okay. so there are free recordings that she has all over the internet, but I like would download them. And there's like one that is about like loving your body and like loving, like what your body like does for you. And so I would like literally play it at night, like as I'm going to sleep. So it would sit in my subconscious. Like that's a great idea though. And it's free. Yeah. Yeah. They're free. Yeah. And I'm, I'm sure there's other ones on Spotify. I use an app called insight timer as well, but yeah, because I think that the counter, the thing that happens like during the day, especially if you are someone who is a creator or like has to spend a lot of time on the internet for work as I do, it's like, you're always going to be like, I, I mean, I got a, a pitch from a PR person that was like, here's how you can get rid of the fat above your knees. And I was like, what? They'll try and convince you like of anything, like, like a product they wanted you to try or. A yeah. It was like injections, like that, you know, oh. smoothed out your knees. And I was like, <laughs> why would that be a thing? You know, but I'm like, there are so many girls like so insecure about so many things. And I'm like, the more that we just like absorb those those messages like constantly, like, of course it has an effect on you. And that's when you're conscious. So I was like, well, when you're unconscious, that's also a really good time. Your brain is fair. I don't want to get too woo woo, but your the brain is very neuroplastic, which means that like it shifts and it's very malleable. So like the things you think can become your reality. So you have to be very careful about what you let in there. I totally agree with that. And yes, it's not to get into like lucky girl syndrome. I know that that's like you were saying the new thing and then everyone's talking about TikTok, but it is true. The more the things you're looking at every day or putting in front of you mm -hmm. or in your mindset, they can become your reality. And no, it doesn't mean like you sit and are like, I want a billionaire husband. And like, here he is, you know, like. <laughs> we wish but, it was that easy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it's not. <laughs> But it is true. It's, you know, it's what you put your attention to. And I think um, you seem like you're in a more happy, better place, not being in New York and not working in the fashion industry. Is that totally. true? True statement. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's much healthier for me anyway. Mm -hmm. And I went to a fashion show in September when I was like in New yes. York and I was very like, I mean, I can, I can do that now without the feelings of like, it was very difficult to also try to recover and then have to sit routinely through like four different fashion weeks in international cities and where everybody is a size zero teenager. And I'm right. like, right. <laughs> well, how could you recover? You'd be like, I'm feeling yeah. great today. And then you're like, this is really, yeah, great. because that's really what someone's saying. Like, this is beauty. This is like what we think is worthy. This is what we want people to pay attention to. Right. And it's just like, wow. Okay. I see. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. And it's, 
it, I do think you have to, you talked about in your book about like giving away all your clothes and like giving away sort of an older, not older, well, I guess it was an older life or a life past and how you have to, how you had to mourn that person, which I think is a great analogy of giving away your clothes and giving away, you know, your old self or old personality. Cause it, it is, it, it is something I think that people, you should mourn it and then you can release it. Like that's not me anymore. You know, it's, and it's, but it's not easy. It is not easy. I, no. it, I really related to that where I was like, after the pandemic, I was like, well, I'm never going to wear, not because of like, but I was like, I don't go to these places anymore. I just was like, I don't want to do this anymore. So I'm like, why am I holding on to this thing? Or why am I holding on to that? Or like certain milestones had passed. And it was funny because I don't know. I'm like, was this all hormonal? Because it was right after my egg retrieval too. So <laughs> when I saw that timeline, I thought, this is interesting. Just that you kind of have these revelations of, okay, well, this is where I am. And realistically, I don't need this. Also that I was like, well, who I am is not like, what I wear and it's not how right. I look like really like affirming that like, even though the world will tell women that the best and only thing you can be is young and beautiful. I'm like, I know that's garbage. Yeah. So I have to be like willing to like take those steps in my own life to be like, I know that's garbage. So you can still be you without all of the stuff. Do you think the beauty industry has changed at all? Not really. Like not really. Not really. I think that I think it's a really long. I think it's a really long way to go. I there's an article in the Atlantic um, that's actually about social media mm. and how toxic it is, and how basically we are never meant to speak to this many people. We're never meant to intake yes. this many thoughts and opinions from external people. Like it just it's so unnatural to mm. like human function the author of the article was basically like, if you think about the way that smoking was made essentially like demonic, we need to do the same with social media. And I was like, wow, what a great analogy to think about like how we should eradicate racism because- You mean the way that they sort of like demonize smoking? Well, yeah, it was like, it was so many, it was like a, an approach that like encompassed like so many different tiers. So like right. the government got involved, then office buildings got involved on an interpersonal level. People were shunned for smoking. Restaurants said you can't smoke in here anymore. Like couldn't even smoke no. on the side in LA it became a point where you couldn't smoke on the sidewalk. Cause I used to smoke and I was like, this is ridiculous. I'm gonna have to go to yes. Vegas to smoke. Yes, exactly. Right. And so it's so unpopular. And even now, like places where there is smoking, people like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe they're smoking. Right. Yeah. I'm like, that's the way we need to think about racism. Is that today? I need to look that up. It was it was a few months ago, maybe in November or October. It's in the it was an opinion piece in the Atlantic. Okay. Yeah, I think like it was it was a multi-generational thing, too. Like if you really think about it, like there used to be a lot more smoking in movies. Absolutely. It really isn't anymore. And like yeah. everybody kind of agreed, like this is what we're doing now. Yes. Growing up, I would be devastated if I wasn't invited to a party. Like mm-hmm. devastated. I can't imagine growing up now where you're seeing it played out on social media, especially to someone's mental health. Like no wonder depression is up. Suicide rates are up because you're seeing everything. It's not just like, it's worse than what you're imagining. Like, oh, everyone else is there. I'm not there. Like the feeling of being excluded. 
Yeah. You said you're working on a new book. Yeah. Can you talk about what, what it is at all before we get to our... Well, it Last is question. fiction, which is a departure. And I really wanted to write a fiction book to begin with, but it was so difficult for me to write fiction because that's just not how I was used to writing. Really? Like at the time I had a daily job where I would like oversee like news stories basically. And so I was like, I am used to doing interviews, doing things based on personal observation or personal narrative and research. And so like it, it was so easy for me to write a nonfiction book, but I really, really wanted to write a fiction book. So that is the book that I'm working on now. And it is a book about a family. And hopefully it's people think it's funny. It's going to be like satirical fiction. So I would say like, think in like the vein of White Lotus. Exciting. (laughs) Everyone's kind of despicable. And yeah. That's exciting. For people that are listening or if someone feels like they are the going back to your your first novel, Token Black Girl, if they're feeling like that is the role they're playing in their group, mm-hmm. what advice would you give someone like if they don't want to be that role anymore? And like you said, which I think was great. I love those sweatshirts you made that said, you know, I'm a blank. You know, mm-hmm. token girl, where there are different, it's not just the black token girl. There's so many of course, token types, right? Yeah. What advice would you give someone if they're trying to get out of that identity? What I would say is that you should try to find community with people who are like-minded, you know, on college campuses or high school campuses, like there are often you know, groups like LGBTQIA plus groups, or like there'll be an Asian group or a black group or a Daisy group, like, so that people can find that connection within their communities. And even as an employee at certain companies, like there are employee resource groups where, you know, you can connect with other employees who are having similar experiences to you and you can use social media, you know, like, that's what's really, that's the, that's the positive, you know, side of it that you can figure out that you're not alone and you can find and connect with people who are doing similar things to you or have like similar interests um, and backgrounds. Right. Right. You said in your book that starting in, was it 2018? You're only, you only will read books by black authors. Mm Mm-hmm. Why? Because and I know I'm, why, but I want you to tell everybody else why. Yeah. The only Black author on any bestseller list is Michelle Obama. That's really? changed. Last week, Stephen A. Smith released a book. So he is also on there now. But yes, white people are not reading Black authors, <laughs> right? And it's so... And not, now I am a Black author. I'm like, it is so difficult, um, to get attention for your book. And I'm like, I've had a great experience. I've been super lucky. Everyone is happy with my book sales, but I'm like, no, I want, I want my book to be a mainstream success. I want my book to be everywhere because it is for everybody. It will help everybody. No, it's still, but you're making a really good point. And I think, I think that goes back to even what we started talking about where, with your company to black girls and all of that, I think p- some people may want to, but then they may think, Oh, p- 
people are going to make fun of me or think this is stupid that I want to read this book. Do you know what I mean? I think people like shame, like people feel ashamed of their lack of knowledge of something, right? Or that they they don't know what or what book to read. Let's be honest. Let's or they may not have any friends that will be reading this and that. So it's true what you're saying. It is important to expand the audience. Yeah. And also like it, it's you need to like take the first step. Like sometimes like that's just all it is. Like, mm. you know, I can't tell you how many black women have been like this exact thing happened to me. Like I know this exact conversation and I'm like, I know. And so many people were like, I don't think there's an audience for that book. Like, I mean, my, I queried probably 80 something agents. I mean, if I can just chime in, not just black women, like I could relate to the book. Everything mm-hmm. on every page of, oh, this being tokenized in a different way, right? Or, oh, this makes sense to me. Oh, this is like when I grew up, you're talking about your sister. It's not just like, oh, you have to be, have had a Black experience to read a Black book. I think maybe that is how some people view it. Yeah. But that's Asian also ex- like, I think a function of white supremacy. It's that you yep. don't understand the humanity of anyone who doesn't look like you. And yeah. I had an Amazon review like last week. She was, the girl was like, this book really helped me understand why some black people seem so bizarre to me. It never occurred to me that black people could have eating disorders. And I was like, hmm, digital footprint, first of all. Second what? of all, like, yes. okay. I'm sorry. I'm, I would be like, uh, <laughs> did you respond you- to them? No, of course not. But like, you know, you just admitted that you really don't see black people as fully human. Like, of course, anyone can have an eating disorder. Like, wow. We need more people to be reading these books. We need more people to understand it. And that opens a doorway for other people to be able to tell their stories as well. Right. All right. Well, we always end with like the rapid five questions. Okay. <laughs> So the first one is, what do you do for a mental break when you want to just kind of turn off the mind or, you know, I know you're a big rider, exerciser. Yeah, I do a lot of exercising. I actually thought that like my love of exercise was really tied to my eating disorder, but actually it's not like I have chilled out completely. I used to work out crazy, sometimes twice a day, very punishing workouts, like things that were really physically draining, but I don't really do that kind of thing anymore. I walk, I do Pilates, I ride. I was at the barn today. That's always like a good time. I certainly don't do any workout where they talk about get bikini body ready or (laughs) get those love handles off or like whatever, you know, like the language of the instructor is like, it's about mobility, feeling good, making sure that like, as I get older, like, you know, I'm not hunched over and that like things don't hurt. (laughs) <laughs> that That's is a point of being careful of what the language is that your teacher or trainer is using. And when is the last time you cried? Um, oh, my friend, my friend is pregnant. When she told me I cried, I was so happy for her. <laughs> oh, that's sweet. Yeah. Uh, number three, what are you currently reading? Okay. Uh, well, I just finished Prince Harry's memoir. Oh, um, no, no. I really can't stand Prince Harry. We don't have enough time for me to go into how much I cannot stand him. But but how was that book? <laughs> I really liked part three. I only read it because I'm only interested in it. You know, I would not read another royal or monarch, I guess. Right, right, right. Jason I don't book know. If he had not married Meghan Markle. Um, right. 
But part three was just so genuine. And I, I'm actually really glad that I read it because I'm like, I'm single. And I it was so lovely to like hear somebody be like, I was intimidated by this woman. Like I thought she was so beautiful. I was so nervous. You know, she's the opposite of me. And and like he was just so appreciative. I'm like, he really loved her. It was really beautiful. Like to now, see, you, now do you I know? have to not hate Prince Harry? I mean, this is what you're saying. I don't, I don't, I don't hate him for, you know, I think he, as a model for like someone who like really tried to like do the work, like, you know, he wore a Nazi uniform to a costume party right. in what, 2004, 2005. Not and that like, long ago. <laughs> yeah. And like really had to, like has been like publicly shamed, publicly put through it. Yes. And I think has now, because of course he loves someone who was directly affected by racism, but can understand. And it's like saying things that nobody else in his family would That's ever true. say, which is very brave. Um, so I don't know. I'm not into like royal drama, but I was in it for like protecting Megan from just... I mean, I could not believe the vitriol. Like, I really couldn't believe it. I'm like, I've lived my whole life as a black woman in white spaces. And I truly was like, I don't even know if I would be strong enough to get through any of that. Yeah. I want to read the book you mentioned in your book, the mm-hmm. eye, is it eye candy or something candy? Uh, the candy house. The candy house. I want to read that. That is the second book. I can't remember what the first one is called, but you can read them independently of each other. But yeah, okay. it's a really really, really, really good story. What is the best and worst advice you've been given? The worst advice I've been given has been about dating. And oh, I want to hear it. I love like, cause I just think sometimes the mine, worst advice can be the best advice. Cause you're like, I won't do that. You know, like, no, it was like, it's honestly horrible advice. You're going to be like, what? <laughs> A friend of mine told me that I was single because I wouldn't give enough blow jobs. Like that's why I'm single. And I was like, that is literally okay. insane. <laughs> That, that's literally insane. Yeah. Uh, that's not good advice. For, if anyone, I know. Yeah. It's horrible. Or like, you know, people who will be like, what's wrong with this guy? And I'm like, as if like, I should just settle, you know, right. Um, like, right. as if like, just like some guy paying attention to me is good enough. I'm like, what's wrong with this guy? They're like, he's so cute. I'm like, I'm cute though. Yeah. I think also, I think just yeah. if you are like, a self-sufficient woman and you know, you're going about your life for like, I, you'd only want someone that can really add value to your life. You know what I mean? If they're not adding more than like someone wants to like at least 51% more, why would, why would you do it? At the very least. You go. <laughs> the best advice was given to me. I did a spiritual consultation with someone here in new Orleans and they said, Ooh, how you sell you is how people buy you. So you have to like really be firm in your value. Like there are certain things that like some people are just too intimidated to even walk into the store, but like you have to like market yourself and sell yourself that way and like not budge. So I'm like, yeah, like we're having Couture Fashion Week and like the price is the price. Like Chanel, not, not everyone's going to have Chanel. And like right. you have to be okay with that. Like I'm not, you're not for everybody and that's right. okay. I'm always like, I'm expensive. So not lying. <laughs> yeah, I was like, you know what? I'm okay with not being for everybody. Like right. enjoy Applebee's 
We're not Applebee's. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm happy for Applebee's to exist. I'm happy for, you know, whatever brand to exist. But I'm like, what I'm cultivating over here is something different. Right. Yeah. Okay. So here we go. This makes sense. What Instagram account, this is question number five, last, do you find uplifting, if any? Okay. I follow a lot of the, okay. Oh, okay. There's these two kids that I follow on TikTok. Okay. And I love them because they're so spunky. They're both girls. And one, her name is Zoe. I just posted her yesterday on my stories. And then this other girl, her name is Lena. And they're just so smart and so confident. Lena gives like little like talks. I mean, she's like four or five years old. (laughs) And she'll like, like preach out there. I'm just like, wow. I'm like, first of all, please, Lord, don't let me have a boring child. That's <laughs> I've never bored my parents a day in my life. And I don't want to be bored. Yeah. Um, but like, it's just so sweet to see like smart girls and mm-hmm. they are so unshakably confident. I find that like very uplifting to watch. I really try to get into TikTok, but I just, I end up the not. And I'm like, oh, I got to get into it because it seems more fun. It does seem way more fun. It's way more fun. Thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode. Thank you to Danielle for joining us. Uh, Where can our listeners find you? I am, you can go to my website, daniellepresscott.com. You can buy the book on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, bookshop.org, The Strand, like book depository if you're in Europe. Book Soup, shout out to Book Soup in LA. That's an independent. I don't know if it's that Book Soup. It might be though. I don't know say it is. I don't know who bought it. You know, like it's like, that's why I tell people to just like go to like the sites directly because- There are certain bookstores that might have bought it and I just have no idea until I go there. And I'm on TikTok at Danielle Prescott7. I'm on Instagram at Danielle Prescott. Um, all right. Well, that's all, folks. Be sure to subscribe to Ben Better HBU. We can be found anywhere you listen to your favorite podcast. Perfect. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to Ben Better. How about you? To learn more, please visit benbetterhbu.com and check out our Instagram, bbhbu. Slide into our DMs with your questions and or comments. Also, be sure to subscribe for your weekly prescription. This pharmacy is open 24-7.